Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Joshua Trobe, board-certified nephrologist and also board-certified in internal medicine with over 15 years of experience in private practice. He currently sees inpatients primarily at Advocate Condell Medical Center in Libertyville, Illinois. Dr. Trobe graduated from Harvard Medical School and, after graduation, underwent residency training in internal medicine at Washington University School of Medicine, Barnes-Jewish Hospital. He then completed a nephrology fellowship at the University of Chicago, and currently he's the chair of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee and also the medical director of a dialysis center here in Lake Bluff, Illinois. Dr. Trobe, before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? I would like to disclose that I recently attended a conference sponsored by Baxter Healthcare. My travel expenses were paid for by Baxter Healthcare. Great. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started? You know, the reason that we are talking today is that we're going to be talking about hemodialysis, but more specifically about CRT or continuous renal replacement therapy. And, you know, for the audience, given that you know, many of them won't be nephrologists, but they will be seeing patients who may be receiving something like CRT. I think it's important to have some background on why they're receiving that form of dialysis, and what implications that has for patient care. So why don't we go ahead and get started and kind of start with the basics of why would a patient need something like hemodialysis or even CRT? A patient will require renal replacement therapy, and I'll use that term for a variety of indications. These are patients who may already be an ESRD patient who are in the intensive care unit setting and require continuation of their care. Patients may also meet several acute indications for replacement therapy. These include severe acidosis, electrolyte abnormalities including hyperkalemia, intoxications, volume overload, and uremia. The issue of the different types of replacement therapy will be covered later, but they basically fall into two categories conventional intermittent hemodialysis, and slower, more continuous therapies. So before we move on, let's talk about some of those indications. So maybe we can put some numbers to when you see a patient who's acidotic. How acidotic do they have to be for you to say, yes, this is a dialysis patient versus someone who may benefit from bicarb or other supportive care? There's a couple of issues with that. One issue to consider on any of these indications is, is there an expected improvement in a short interval? If the feeling is that this is going to be a prolonged issue with the patient's renal function, we may consider starting these therapies earlier for any of these indications. If the feeling is that they will recover within the next 12 to 24 hours, we may be more likely to attempt to temporize them. Uh, typically, an acidosis uh, indication for renal replacement therapy will, patients will often have a pH of less than 7.2, often even lower than that, 7.1 or below. Uh, these are, will be patients who are poorly responsive to the infusion of bicarbonate or even refractory to bicarbonate. And then I'm thinking about something like hyperkalemia. We're not going to cover the cocktail given for hyperkalemia, but are these patients who are receiving hemodialysis for hyperkalemia refractory to that cocktail? And again, I think we have to distinguish between those we expect improvement on and those we don't. If we have a post-surgical patient who's anuric and we see no likelihood of recovery in the near term, we would be more likely to, to do renal replacement therapy earlier for hyperkalemia. But typically, we are not dialing hyperkalemia until unless the K is above 6. There are severe EKG abnormalities. Of course. And then for uremia, you know, thinking about encephalopathy, I think if you're contributing the encephalopathy to uremia, that's a pretty slam dunk case. But what about just the number itself? Is there a number that would be in, indicated for dialysis? You know, that, that's really an area of some controversy. There, there is no clear BUN cutoff for dialysis. I would say that, that if people are going to use a BUN cutoff, most people in the field would probably 
say B1 over 100 as a cutoff, but t- typically we don't we don't reach that point. We often will look at patients and see, you know, what is your urine output? Are they able to excrete their daily cellular toxin load? Um, do we see expectation of recovery? If we see several days with minimal urine output, even if the B1 is not elevated, we know that they're unlikely to be able to remove their daily cellular and we may do dialysis earlier. Uh, it's it's rare that we have the acute indication of encephalopathy or pericarditis, but those also are indications that are occasionally used to initiate dialysis. And we would, if we felt the pericarditis was due to uremia, we would not use a strict B1 cutoff. It would be a clinical judgment. Perfect. So I know, Dr. Trub, you mentioned um, intoxication. That What are some of the intoxicants that are just slam dunk, must get dialysis versus the softer call ones? I would say slam dunk uh, indications for me would be ethylene glycol as well as methyl alcohol. Isopropyl alcohol follows pretty close behind. There, there is some talk for ethylene glycol of using alcohol dehydrogenase antagonists and temporizing with those if people have adequate renal function. But I would say in clinical practice, we are usually pretty quick to dialyze them because we always get concerned that they may have a drop-off in renal function in the near future. We know when we do dialysis, we're removing the toxin. Um, less less uh, clear sometimes are things like lithium and salicylates. If they're um, well below the action level, we may, may monitor. If someone with lithium, even though the level may not be that high, if it's a chronic ingestion, we're more likely to do dialysis. Uh, one point I do want to get across, though, is that for most of the intoxicants, intermittent conventional dialysis is preferred over CRT. And why is that? Partly because the, remo- the removal of the toxin is not quick enough with CRT. And I also do want to mention with hyperkalemia as well, that for severe hyperkalemia, intermittent dialysis is preferred, again, because the rate of potassium removal is not as fast with CRT as it is with um, conventional dialysis. And we will be speaking about the different modalities, but kind of the quick and dirty is that with intermittent hemodialysis, you have a three to four hour session. Exactly. Three to four hour session versus anywhere from 12 to 24 hours a day for the other therapies. Got it. Okay. You know, in pharmacy school, at least for me, one of the mnemonics that we learned was AEIOU, acidosis, electrolytes, et cetera. And I think that acronyms like that are great, except okay. that there's so many clinical nuances, just like we've discussed in terms of, right. you know, it's not just acidosis. It's, is it getting better or worse? Exactly. What other therapies? So I, I'm really glad that you shared that because I think it's important. It's not just the term itself. It's the clinical approach. What to actually happens in the field. Right? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about the technology of dialysis itself. As I understand it, there's kind of two different ways that the blood can be cleaned through diffusion and also through convection. Can you kind of give us a background on those two modalities and when you might use one over the other or both? Sure. Diffusion is the modality for solute removal that's more typical with uh, conventional intermittent hemodialysis. There also is a diffusive component with most continuous therapies. The fusion describes the process by which solutes move along concentration gradient from, a, from a, a place of higher concentration to a place of lower concentration. This is achieved across a semi-permeable membrane, such as a dialysis membrane. The type of solutes that cross the membrane are determined by the pore size in the semi-permeable membrane. Typically, diffusion involves the removal of smaller solutes. Uh, urea is a classic example of that. So then in diffusion, on that semipermeable membrane, on one side you have your blood, on the other side, what do you have then? You have dialysate on the other side. Okay. And um, basically the things that you want to remove are lower in the dialysate. The things you want to give back are higher in the dialysate. Potassium would be low in the dialysate if you want to remove potassium. Typically patients who are acidotic, the bicarb level is high in the dialysate. So dialysis moves across the membrane into the blood space. 
So just to give a number to it, if you are treating a patient with hyperkalemia, potassium of 9, what kind of dialysate fluid, what is the concentration of the potassium in that fluid that you might select? We would use the lowest available dialysate potassium concentration, which is 1. 1 milliequivalent per liter, which for your body would be not compatible with life. Not compatible with life. Excellent. Okay. Perfect. So diffusion sounds pretty simple, high concentration to low concentration. What about convection as a, a modality for renal replacement therapy? Convection is, is best described as solvent drag. You have high volumes of fluid uh, moving across the membrane due to a difference in hydrostatic pressure. With this high volume fluid movement, solutes are carried along with the fluid. Uh, typically, this modality will remove larger molecular weight compounds. And when we think about, again, we're going to move into the modalities in just a second. When we think about these two choices, are you physically changing a setting on the dialysis machine or how, how do you achieve one or the other or both? Well, with conventional dialysis, there's a small amount of convection, but it's actually very limited. The, the, the major site removal mechanism in conventional dialysis is diffusion. With continuous renal replacement therapy, we are able to actually adjust the amount of convection as well as the amount of diffusion. To increase the amount of convective site removal, we would increase the amount of replacement fluid going into the blood space and then being removed from the blood space by hydrostatic pressure across the the dialysis membrane. Now, is there any benefit of one version or one modality over the other in terms of convection versus diffusion? That has been studied. Uh, There's been no no clear evidence that one modality is preferred. There is a sense that with convection, you have removal of things like cytokines, which may have some potential benefit in the treatment of sepsis. However, you may be removing beneficial cytokines as well, so it's unclear. Okay. Well, let's go into the specifics of some of these modalities. I know we've already talked about conventional or intermittent hemodialysis, which you said would be three to four hour session every other day or three times a week. And when I think of a hemodialysis patient on the outpatient side, this is my typical thing that I think about. Yeah, I would say that's correct. You know, when, when we dialyze, when we do intermittent or conventional hemodialysis for the acute kidney injury patient, it's, it's more, it's customized really on a day-to-day basis for that patient. Uh, in the outpatient setting, we have a prescription. It's not modified very often. In the inpatient setting, the prescription may be modified daily. Mm-hmm. And we typically do it every other day, but there are times when people have large volumes of fluid removed that we will do it daily. Typically involves a three to four hour session, more likely four hours, I would say, in the acute kidney injury ICU setting. The blood flow rate is about 250 to 400 mLs per minute. The, the positive of it is that you have very rapid toxin removal as well as fairly rapid volume removal. Uh, that is also the negative as well because it can promote hemodynamic instability. So then I would guess that the other modalities that we have probably either don't pull as much blood out as quickly or don't remove fluid from the blood volume as dramatically as our intermittent hemodialysis. That's true. The blood flows with um, continuous therapies are often more in the range of 200 or 150 to 200. And the solute and fluid removal is over a longer period of time. Okay. So let's talk about this continuous version of hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy. Within the uh, realm of CRRT, there's a couple different flavors of that in terms of how we're actually cleaning the blood. So CVVHD or continuous venovenous hemodialysis is really very similar to conventional dialysis. The blood flows through a uh, dialyzer. When the blood enters the dialyzer, it is separated into multiple small tubes, basically. These small tubes are bathed by dialysate. Solutes move from the blood space to the dialysate space. The dialysate is removed, and the dialysate is actually continuously refreshed as well to maintain the diffusion gradient. 
Okay. Uh, CVVH is continuous venovenous hemofiltration. There is no dialysate involved. It involves the movement of large volumes of fluid into the blood space and then out of the blood space, basically through a hydrostatic pressure mechanism. Uh, this allows for removal of solutes by uh, solute drag or convection. Finally, when we use both together, we call it continuous venovenous hemodiafiltration, or CVHDF. Uh, in our institution, that is the most commonly used. And as the pharmacist in the room, I'm, I must say that from a drug dosing standpoint, the modality used dramatically impacts the dosing regimen that we pick for the patient. Uh, for, for the example you gave, hemodiofiltration in many cases will remove a lot more drug particle than CVVH, for example. Right, or CVHD. Exactly. Yeah. And at least in, in my experience, I've seen a lot of CVVH, but I also know that there's a kind of an alternative modality called SLED uh, that uh, is being seen at some institutions as well. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, and yes. That and basically mostly uses a lot, utilizes a hemodialysis machine or actually occasionally utilizes a, a home machine called a next-stage machine. It uses conventional hemodialysis with diffusion, although it is over a much longer period of time. Uh, it uses lower blood flows as well. It may be better tolerated in a hemodynamically unstable patient. Uh, the benefit of it would be that it, it allows for time for various procedures and radiologic studies during the off time. I would actually say it's sort of gone up and down in its popularity. I think it's probably going to wane over time, partly because of the staffing issue. You, if an ICU nurse may have trouble running a hemodialysis machine. They might have to bring in staff from a dialysis company. The cost and expense issues with that. Excellent. And j- just for, for clarity, SLED is sustained low efficiency daily dialysis. That's correct. Yes. Okay. And, you know, so we have a couple different modalities. Clearly, there's some benefits and downsides to each one. Is there a best modality for the critically ill patient? Studies have not clearly indicated one modality of greater benefit than the other. That being said, we won't often even attempt intermittent dialysis in someone who's very hypotensive or unstable. And that issue is hard to get around when you're designing these studies. A couple of indications have been mentioned that are suggested in a benefit for CRT. These include increased intracranial pressure and hepatic failure with coma in particular. CRT is felt to be the preferred modality in those settings. So, you know, in thinking about something like SLED versus CRT, personal experience is clearly very valuable. Are you familiar with what the kind of guidelines in the U.S. uh, prefer in terms of SLED versus CRT versus any other modality? I can't say SLED. I think the addition of SLED versus CRT in this country is really institutional preference. I would say CRT is used more widely around the world in European countries in Australia and New Zealand. I would say the issue of when to use a continuous therapy over an intermittent therapy is really a factor of instability. And the KDGO guidelines on AKI, which, yeah, which came out, the KDGO guidelines came out in 2012, recommend the use of, of CRT in patients who are hemodynamically unstable. Which makes sense, and that kind of reflects your personal practice as well for that unstable patient. I think also one has to remember that if someone is hemodynamically unstable, yes, you can add a vasopressor, for example, but that pressor comes with complications, specifically cardiovascular complications like uh, troponin leaks, AFib. There's complications of adding this drug just to get your modality, as opposed to perhaps picking an alternative modality where you may not need as much of that norepinephrine, for example. Exactly. And that... Again, although it was mentioned previously that there is no clear, it hasn't been a clearly established benefit of one or the other, it goes back to the fact that we really, we would be loath to introduce another factor in an unstable patient. Uh, we would 
typically really not want to exacerbate the situation by attempting intermittent dialysis in those patients. As, as mentioned, in addition of a pressor could improve blood pressure, but uh, if there's a therapy available that allows us to uh, pursue this without the addition of a pressor, that would be preferred from my perspective and from most nephrologists' perspective. So as a pharmacist, I think it's really important that we talk about drug dosing in these patients with acute kidney injury, especially those on CRRT. And I mentioned earlier that the modality matters, but for me, at least a very common clinical pitfall that I see on the pharmacy side is people not appreciating that the serum creatinine does not represent the patient's creatinine clearance per se when they're getting something like CRRT. Or um, if we have an acute change in serum creatinine, if you just do a simple Cockroft gault to estimate the creatinine clearance, as it's acutely changing, it's not going to give us a great picture. It's a snapshot, but it's not a great picture of their true renal function. Do you see this very commonly in your practice? I agree with it as well. Uh, you, you can't really use the creatinine or the Cockroft valve unless you're in a steady state. And these patients are, by definition, not in a steady state. If, so, if, if someone has a creatinine of 1, but they're aneuric, their effective GFR is less than 10. Exactly. And for me, the best analogy I give pharmacy students is, if you took my serum creatinine right now and it's one, and you took up my kidneys, both of them right now, and you tested my serum creatinine in 10 minutes, it'll still be one. Exactly. Because you have to accumulate all this creatinine. Right. right. And another common pitfall that I see is in the computer system, it lists either creatinine clearance or EGFR. EGFR is, uh, depends on your institution, but typically uses uh, an equation very similar to cockcroft galt CKD, EPI, or MDRD. Right. And there's nothing special about these equations. They still are based on your age, body weight, gender, sometimes race. And for that reason, as you said, if you're not at steady state, these aren't going to give you a clear picture of renal function. Exactly. So in terms of the nuts and bolts of continuous renal replacement therapy, I think it's important to briefly talk about anticoagulation. Right. And this is a common topic because there's a couple different ways that you can do it. Sometimes you don't need any anticoagulation. Can you just give us a 30,000-foot view of when is it used and how is it done, um, if it is done, in patients on CRRT? From my perspective, we can often get away with doing CRRT without any anticoagulation at all. And that is a benefit from my perspective. Critically ill patients are by definition at risk of other adverse events, including GI bleeding, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. If anticoagulation can be avoided, that is preferable. One way to avoid the need for anticoagulation is to be able to have a very good blood flow through your catheter. Uh, that often involves a well-placed catheter, typically in the right IJ. Um, if we have to anticoagulate, we have a couple of options. One is to utilize low-intensity heparin uh, directly into the CRT circuit. We can often um, have benefit with heparin infusions of as low as 300 to 500 units per hour, uh, which simply don't cause major bleeding. However, you still run the risk of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Uh, the other option is to use regional citrate anticoagulation. Uh, a lot of centers find great benefit to that. We don't use that as much as our institution. Uh, it is somewhat complicated to utilize. And of course, with uh, citrate as an anticoagulant, you know, one of the reasons that our institution typically won't use it is the amount of calcium that you have to end up giving the patient to undo that citrate and correct the hypocalcemia that happens. Exactly. Okay. Especially with shortages of calcium and things like that. Absolutely. And when we talk about the need for anticoagulation, kind of the, the risk of not anticoagulating is the filter half-life, if you will, in terms of how frequently you're having to replace the filter. Is that exactly. the main thing from your Exactly. Standpoint? It's filter half-life. And there are multiple issues with loss of filter. One is the expense issue. They're quite expensive. Uh, the other issue is the, often the loss of blood in the filter itself. And then, of course, when we're giving heparin to a patient, as you mentioned, something as low as 500 units an hour is a very low dose, but we probably still should check PTTs just to know where the patient is at. 
Do you do you find that you'll ever see patients that do have elevated PTTs, probably more to their critical illness as opposed to the heparin that you're giving? Yeah, I typically haven't seen large PTT elevations from those low doses, but a lot of the patients who are getting heparin may have an elevated PTT at the beginning due to critical illness and liver dysfunction. So it should definitely be checked before you start the heparin infusion. Perfect. And, you know, I think that two of the most common questions that come up when we think about the use of CRT is, when do you do it? Do you do it really early on when you're anticipating the need, or do you wait until they have an absolute indication for dialysis? And then also, how much do you give? So do you give a more intense regimen of dialysis, or do you give uh, a less intense regimen of dialysis? So why don't we start with the first question in terms of, is it better to initiate CRT earlier on versus when you, when you think that you might need it down the road? Or is it better to wait a little bit until they have the potassium that is 6.2 and you're ready to crack that hyperkalemia? Well, I mean, th- that's a good question. Uh, before I begin, uh, I will mention that as a, as a practicing nephrologist, the clinical practice is, is not necessarily to start early, but to begin before it becomes an emergent situation. And again, it relates to the clinical setting. If someone is post-surgery, severe pancreatitis, and they're anuric with no expectation of renal recovery in the near future, there isn't great benefit to wait until the potassium goes from 6 to 7. That being said, there have been a, several studies performed in this area. One very well-designed study performed in 2016 was the so-called KIKI trial, uh, which looked, looked at this very question. Uh, it did exclude patients who had a very compelling indication at the start. Those compelling indications were described in the article itself, but included things like severe acidosis, severe hyperkalemia, marked elevation in BUN. Those patients, as mentioned, had a compelling indication at the beginning and were excluded. It then, it then took the rest of the patients and divided them into a group where they tried to start renal replacement within a short time interval as possible, and those in which they decided to delay. Those who they delayed on basically waited until a compelling indication developed or until they were oliguric or anuric at 72 hours. And an important finding in the study was that there was no difference in 60-day mortality between the two groups. One thing that was mentioned was that the early group did have an increased incidence of catheter bacteremia. And one final finding that was very important was that of the patients who delayed therapy, only 51% of them eventually required renal replacement therapy. So this, this study definitely gives us pause to consider whether we can delay. Now, if we do delay therapy, though, we've got to be very aware of the compelling occasion that may arise, be ready to start on a very short basis. What's really interesting about the Akiki trial is that we've actually seen similar findings in very different areas with respect to doing something early when it's not absolutely a compelling reason or waiting. And one of the ones that comes to mind is actually tracheostomy. There was a trial called the Trachman trial where they said, okay, are we going to give you an early trach because we think you're going to need it? Or are we going to wait up to you know 10 to 14 days and then give you the trach when we've given you adequate time to recover from your critical illness? And not to get too much into the trial, but it was a similar finding in that if you waited, we were actually fairly bad at determining whether you would almost certainly need to have a tracheostomy in the, down the road or not. And a, percent, a good percent of the patients didn't need a tracheostomy if they were in the later group. In the same sense here, it looks like these patients will probably need CRRT and some portion of them end up not requiring it, which means that you don't have to have all of the CRT machinery. You don't have to have the invasive line potentially. But as you said, some people are going to have that compelling indication and you have to you know, have a good surveillance of labs and urine output and things like that to know when they actually do have that compelling reason. Exactly. And that was one of the benefits of the ICU setting is that we have 
low nursing ratio and the ability to monitor chemistries very closely. Perfect. Well, it sounds like it's probably still controversial. As you mentioned, there's a lot of different studies. Akiki is one of the, the better designed larger trials. And I think that in terms of dosing CRT, we also have a good amount of controversy. If you get 10 nephrologists in a room, I feel like you're going to get a couple different opinions on intensity of hemodialysis or the dose of hemodialysis. Can you kind of briefly give the pros and cons of one version or the other? Yes. The issue of intensity of dialysis has, has been um, somewhat controversial and discussed very closely over the years. From a perspective of just uh, common sense, many nephrologists have felt in the past that if dialysis is good, more dialysis is better. But you know, as with other therapies that have been studied in the past, the need for studies uh, clearly exists. There had been, in the past, there have been several single, there have been single center studies, which did, did appear to demonstrate a benefit of higher dialysis dose versus lower dialysis dose. However, we have the benefit of a couple of very large studies, 2008 and 2009, that did look at this very issue. So then give us a sense of where these trials were conducted, what they looked at, and what they found. First, I'll describe uh, this so-called ATN trial performed in 2008. Actually stood for the VA NIH Acute Renal Failure Trial Network. And it basically took stable and unstable patients and compared either uh, lower dose versus higher dose therapies. For the stable patients, and they meant hemodynamic stability for the most part, they compared six, six times per intermittent dialysis versus three times per intermittent dialysis. For the unstable patients, they compared the use of either SLED or CRT. With SLED, it was either three times a week or six times a week. With CRT, it was either an effluent rate of 35 mLs per kilo per hour uh, versus 20 mLs per kilo per hour. Just to clarify, the effluent rate refers to the volume of fluid that exits the CRT machine during a treatment. And this would be the sum of the replacement fluid, the dialysate fluid, and the fluid-infused pre-filter. Uh, this sum is, uh, this hourly sum is then divided by the patient's weight to obtain the so-called effluent rate. And this is a good way to look at the dose of continuous therapy they're obtaining. So then what did the, the study find in terms of um, this more aggressive, more often regimen, or this less often well, regimen? I'll just mention that basically at 60 days, there was no difference in mortality between the more aggressive and less aggressive regimens. And then, you know, in reviewing the ATN trial, I also noticed, not dissimilarly from some of the other trials, that there was a complication associated with a more aggressive regimen in that um, if you got this more aggressive regimen, you were more likely to have hypotension requiring vasopressor support. And again, that's a, a harm associated and not a clear benefit of this more aggressive strategy. So maybe in this case, like many areas of medicine, less can be more sometimes. And, and people have wondered why that would be the case. And they're, they're, it's theoretically postulated that higher doses of CRT may be removing more beneficial compounds, such as beneficial cytokine. So then tell us about the other trial, the 2009 trial. We have the renal trial from 2009, which stands for Randomized Evaluation of Normal versus Augmented Level replacement therapy study. It was a collaborative study performed in Australia and New Zealand. And this study um, was useful in the setting in the sense that it only used one therapy, continuous renal replacement therapy, and allowed comparisons of dose in this one therapy. And patients were randomized to either a, a high-intensity or a lower-intensity dose. The high-intensity effluent dose um, was described as 40 mLs per kilo per hour. The lower-intensity dose was 25 mLs per kilo per hour. And it's similar to the other study, there was no difference in 90-day mortality between the two arms or other secondary FT endpoints. And there was no evident difference observed in the severe sepsis cohort. And again, that sepsis cohort was postulated as, you know, if we remove some of these inflammatory cytokines, maybe we can make the patient better quicker because of this balance between pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory markers in the blood. 
But as you mentioned, if you're removing both, maybe the net effect is not beneficial. Right, exactly. Interesting. So it sounds like, again, we have a second trial that says maybe a little bit less is more that highly aggressive dosing isn't necessarily the way to go. With that said, though, these are large randomized trials on a patient-specific level, though. Is there ever a time where you, at least for yourself, can justify a more aggressive dosing regimen or more aggressive frequency that maybe these trials don't speak specifically to one patient type that you see commonly or that don't address a certain clinical scenario that sometimes happens? Right, and that's true. It has to be individualized based on the patient. And there are situations where patients do need more aggressive effluent flows. For instance, patients who are hypercatabolic. Potentially things like tumor lysis syndrome or severe pancreatitis, uh, they may require more aggressive removal of solutes. In addition, patients who are severely acidemic, uh, we will require higher effluent rates to try to treat that acidosis. And as you mentioned earlier, in the inpatient setting as opposed to the outpatient setting, um, it's a daily decision on dialysis. And if that patient has very bad pulmonary edema and they can tolerate more fluid removal, maybe it's okay to do the up to six times a week dialysis. It may be a bit aggressive, but still, maybe not three times a week. But uh, especially Right, especially in a patient who has uh, significant pulmonary issues, uh, perhaps the patient that we're trying to get extubated, lean from the ventilator, we are going to want to remove volume more aggressively. And additionally, if we're doing intermittent dialysis, we want to, we want to do the volume move on a daily basis to avoid provoking instability. We um, remove the volume infused that day that may have uh, a benefit to the patient. And clearly, this is where critical thought and clinical decision-making comes in, that you apply the evidence that you have in addition to the patient-specific factors that you have in front of you. It should be kind of the two factors that play a role in your decision on how you dose it and how frequently you give it and things like that, as with any area of medicine. Exactly. The, the, the trials really provide a toolkit to help us make this decision. Dr. Trobe, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. And for the audience, thank you for joining us today as well. This does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have topics or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet us your input at SCCM and use the hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. And for the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.